Good morning, family. It's good to be with you. Good morning, family online. It's good to be with you as well. Thank you, Will. My name is Eddie. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Covenant Church, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's good to see your faces. Uh, some faces I haven't seen in a little while, and if you're online, thank you for being here. I'm sorry I can't see your face, but I'm glad you're with us nonetheless. Well, before we get started, I just wanted to make a, a few remarks. Uh, first of all, if you took part in the Bible journey, I want to thank you and congratulate you. We, we're a couple weeks out from having done that, but I just wanted to come back and kind of put a, a tidy little bow on that. If you're not familiar, we did what was called the Bible journey, where we went from Genesis 1 to Revelation, and we took that as an opportunity to read various passages of Scripture that would help us kind of get an overall view of what Scripture is about. And so if you partook in that, thank you. I hope it was beneficial to you. Um, but in moments like this, especially when it comes to reading your Bible, you might find yourself now twiddling your thumbs. And so I just wanted to give you some tangible next steps that you could take. First of all, if you took part in the Bible journey and you, you're asking, okay, what do I do now? I would go ahead and right after service, or if you're online, just open another window and download a Bible reading plan. You can download the five by five by five reading plan. Uh, it takes you through uh, the New Testament five days a week, one chapter every day um, for about five minutes each day. And then, then it gives you five more ways you can kind of dig deeper if you want to. Alternatively, if you want to go a little bit harder, a, a little bit uh, more deeply, you can uh, read through the daily reading plan. There are a number of different ones, but they'll take you through the Old Testament and the New Testament. One that I've read often is, it was called the daily Bible reading plan. And it took you through the Old Testament once and the New Testament and I think Psalms twice. But that, that'll take you through three or four ver chapters a day. And it'll take a little bit more time, but it's worthwhile. So read, get a Bible reading plan. Second, join a small group. Um, I'm going to talk about a kickoff we're having in just a moment, but, but join a small group. And then finally, uh, just don't give up. This is, this is a great thing for us to be in the Word of God, and, and it's something that shapes us. That does move us to the next piece. We have a sm our fall small group Zoom kickoff, and I'm very excited about this. Is, this is going to be a great opportunity for all of us to get together on a Zoom call and hear from our small group leaders, hear from small group participants. This is for anyone and everyone. So if you want to be in a small group, you should be on this Zoom call. If you don't want to be in a small group, you should be on this Zoom call because we're going to try and convince you that you should be in a Zoom call or uh, in, a, in a small group. Um, that's going to happen next week uh, after service, and uh, it's going to be a great opportunity for us to, to just share something that's really important to our church body and, and your, your continuing growth as a disciple. Um, two weeks from now? Okay, I'm getting notes. It's two weeks from now, 10-4. Uh, I'm, yes, next week there's something else happening. Okay, two weeks from now, everything's going to be okay. Next week, if you try to join us on Zoom, you won't have a code, so I'm not sure what will happen. Um, finally, we are going back into the auditorium. Now, for those of you who are online, you can still celebrate with us. Thank you for being with us online. For those of you in person, you can celebrate lumbar support. Um, we, we held off on being in the auditorium because we couldn't guarantee the safety of the location and, and guarantee that the chairs would be uh, sanitized. But they have now gotten the, the hardware, the software, the materials, whatever it takes to sanitize. I don't know if they set them on fire every day, but uh, they, they are, they're safe for us to sit in. Um, and so we would love for, us to for you to join us then. If, if you've held off because you, you can't, couldn't see, sit in bleachers, we understand 
Now you can sit in non-bleachers. They're, you know, padded, comfortable seats. And if you get on one of the ends, you can have a, your own hand. I think they all actually are ha all have armrests. So it's, it's going to be nice. I'm looking forward to that. Um, but uh, yes, and then that's, that's all I have. But I wanted to reflect on, on small groups. Small groups have been really important to, to my growth in my life. They've been a place where, where I've been challenged by other men of God, and, and there have been places where I've been able to, to share my own heart and, and walk alongside with people. And, and, and in this season of life especially, it's easy to feel isolated and disconnected. And so my encouragement to you is take advantage of, of one of the main things that we have to offer as a way of staying connected, as a way of continuing in your discipleship, uh, as a way of really loving other members of the church body by being in a small group. There are, there are ones that meet at different times of the day, uh, different places. Uh, well, most of them are online, actually, so kind of the same place, but um, different uh, days of the week. But, but take advantage of that. It's going to be a benefit to you. Well, last week, we considered, we, we looked at Psalms, uh, and, and we considered the fact that God's glory is most clearly evidenced through his gracious acts. God's glory, his awesomeness, his, his uh, radiance, his beauty, his strength, his power, all of the things that make God worthy of, of, his, of our, our attention are best expressed in those acts in, in uh, history where he shows himself to be gracious, really through his redemptive and saving works. And so today I wanted to, to look a little bit more at this, this theme of God's glory in his grace uh, at, a, at a passage where Paul the Apostle connects the gospel itself, the story of God's grace through his son Jesus Christ, and, and the glory of God. So we're going to read through 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 as a people. If you can stand with me, um, if you're online, I'd still love for you to read along with me. We're reading out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you once again, and we, we sit under your word. We, we settle ourselves under your word, and we thank you that you give us a picture of your glory, really the greatest expression of your glory, this side of Jesus' second coming, through his life, death, and resurrection, that in our, our considering and meditating on this, Lord, you communicate your glory to us. Your, your light shines in us. 
Lord, I pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to see and appreciate the radiance of your grace in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd give us opportunities to be witnesses to your glory in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces. Give us the same boldness to proclaim Christ that you gave Paul. And above all, Lord, help us to see your glory. Lord, we want to see your glory as expressed in Jesus Christ. We want it to be a reality that doesn't just sit on the page, but that, that impacts our heart and creates motivation for us to live and act in a way that honors and pleases you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to do what you do, to change our hearts, to ignite our passion, to confirm our, our faith in you through your word. Would you do that now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. When Paul teaches in, in Scripture, he does what, what theologians call task, task, like to-do list, task theology. You know, oftentimes when we look at the Bible, we, we would love for it to just say, this is who God is, this is what he says, uh, this is what he says about man, and, and this is what he says about sin, this is what he says about reality. But the, the fact of the matter is, when he, Paul is speaking, he's speaking in the context of a situation to a particular people, and, and there are these amazing theological uh, gems that are lodged in his letters. Not to say that not all of the, the letter is valuable, but, but in, in verses four and following, there's some really amazing things that we're going to look at, but it's couched within the context of, of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And so we're going to take a minute, maybe a little bit longer than, than usual, to, to kind of unpack the situation that Paul is addressing. Now, this is the second letter that, that's in Scripture to the Corinthian church. The Corinthians, uh, th this was a church in, in Corinth. It was a place where there was a lot of pagan worship and some craziness. Gentiles lived there, and, and so Paul had to deal with quite a bit of, of wildness, I guess you could say. And so 1 Corinthians addresses a lot of those things, um, the, the misbehaviors that, that they were doing. I'm, I'm being euphemistic. There's some really sinful things that he addresses in, in 1 Corinthians, and you can go back and read that. And he addresses this church, he, he loves on them, he cares about them, but what happens between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there's actually a lot of things that, that transpire. Another uh, preacher, pastor goes there, a guy named Apollos, and, and he's really eloquent, and in comparison to Paul, he seems like you know, a really great orator. Now, he's, Paul doesn't have anything against Apollos, but because Apollos kind of presents well, he, he ends up currying favor, and, and the Corinthian church has this temptation to kind of downplay Paul and his ministry. And in addition to that, some individuals come who are kind of anti-Paul and anti the gospel as we know it, and they begin to present a, another gospel. And we see that, that mentioned, if you were to read through 2 Corinthians, you see him begin to address really some of the, the other things that are going on. So the, the Apollos had gone, and, and these other opponents of Christ, or opponents of, of Paul had gone to the Corinthian church, and so Paul actually goes and, and, and tries to, to care on them, care for them and love them, and they, they basically humiliate him, and they, they disregard his ministry, and so rather than being harsh in person, he leaves kind of in shame, and then he writes 
a, a harsh letter. And a harsh letter from Paul, if you've read anything from Paul, is, man, I don't want to read it. And we don't actually have this letter that stands between First and Second Corinthians, but we know that he writes this letter correcting their behavior and, and really addressing their, their sin, their, their disagreement with him. And, and here we find that, that they, uh, they have re- repented to some degree. Most of them have repented. There is still a minority group that, that needs to be addressed, but some of them have repented, and he's writing the second letter to address some of the issues that have come up. And, and these other people have tested and tried Paul's ministry. They've kind of called into question his gospel. You know, his gospel doesn't sound, it, it sounds confusing. It's, it's veiled, they say. It's, it's problematic. They, they question his apostolic ministry. You know, Paul was different than the other apostles in that he didn't have direct access to Jesus for the, the period of time that Jesus was on the earth alive. Now, or... Uh, on the earth before his ascension. Now, Paul does have a, a real interaction with Jesus, as we'll read in just a moment, but they question his, his ministry. So, uh, this leads us to the second part. Now, Paul, he ministers out of a very specific perspective and a very specific gospel. Um, and I know this is a lot of detail, but stick with me because it, it's going to help us understand the, the text. He... he preaches out of this specific gospel, and he calls it my gospel. He, he refers to it as his gospel because it, is so, it has so impacted his life because he has such a unique relationship to God. If we were to flip over, you don't have to go there, but I'm going to read a few texts, um, and, and you can write them down. Philippians 3, chapters five and, or sorry, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes this about himself, talking to the Philippians. He says this, uh, if anyone, I'm starting in verse 4, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in other, in other words, if, if anyone thinks that they can be confident based on their own credentials, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of the Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so he gives his credentials prior to his, his impactful relationship with Christ. And he says, I was a, 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 an Israelite of Israelites, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I had gone to the greatest seminary. I was the you know, top class, basically top class Jewish professor, priest, individual. Not priest, but, but studier of the law. Beyond that, he, he had also been present at the at the uh, stoning of Stephen, and that, that kind of exemplified his relationship to the church and to, to the gospel prior to his conversion. In Acts chapter, chapter 7, we see uh, Stephen, who's just this, he's just a waiter, but, but people begin to talk about, you know, what do you believe about this gospel? And he launches into a gospel presentation going from the beginning of redemptive history all the way to Jesus. And the, the people, the listeners get angrier and angrier and angrier to the point that they decide that he is being blasphemous. Now he isn't, he's, he's proclaiming Christ and they want to stone him. And so in chapter seven, they prepare to stone him. And, he, and uh, it says that they cast him out of the city and stoned him and witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul was present at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. 
And he was standing there as a, as a Jewish representative approving of the martyrdom. Uh, and in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. So here's a man writing to the Corinthians who has had a strong animosity against God. And then we have in Acts chapter 9, his radical conversion. And it says in chapter 9, verse 1 and following, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Damascus, and he wanted to arrest any Christians that he found as he went. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly, now listen in, a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you persecute, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now the men traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. All the while, God is preparing this other guy named Ananias to go and pray for Saul, pray for Saul's healing, and really for him to be prepared to do what he's he's going to do. Now Saul, or sorry, Ananias, who's a Christian, doesn't want to go see Saul because he knows what Saul's about. And he says to God, Lord, I've heard many things about this man, how, how much evil he's done for your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Listen to this. But the Lord said to him, go, for he has... He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So he goes, Ananias goes, and he prays over Paul, and it says in verse 18 of chapter 9, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Um... And then it goes, for some days he was in, with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. So Paul has this really unique experience of conversion. Matthew, James, John, Paul, Peter, these guys had walked with Jesus. They'd kind of been coaxed into faith. Jesus had spent three years developing them. But Paul has a different gospel experience where Jesus literally kicks him off his horse, blinds him, and says, I've got a new plan for you. And he has this experience of being blind and literally being able to see physically, and that, that sight coinciding with his spiritual sight opening up. And so I want you to listen with that background to verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians as I read it again. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. In other words, I was a persecutor of the church. I was against God. I was pleased to see one of God's disciples being, uh, being stoned to death. But by the mercy of God, I've been given this ministry. And so he says, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
But by open statement of the truth, we will commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I know that Corinthians, you guys have had some interlopers come and say some things about my ministry. I know, Corinthian church, that you have had people come here and say that, that my gospel is not the gospel, that, that it's confusing or it's difficult or it, it doesn't include everything that it ought to include in the way of, of what you have to do to be saved but we have not done anything underhanded. We have not done anything to tamper God's word. We've not practiced cunning, but we have openly presented the truth to you. We've presented the truth to you, he says. You can almost hear him pleading with them. Please, I already wrote one terrible letter to you guys correcting you for your sinfulness and your hard-heartedness. Please hear me now. Hear that I have been open-handed with this gospel message. And even if our gospel is veiled, and he knows what it means for the gospel to be veiled because the gospel was veiled to him. Even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see, our problem, our primary problem is not that we are uh, ill-informed. Our primary problem is not that we are undereducated. As humans, our primary problem is not that, that our mom and dad didn't love us right and, and give us what we needed and we didn't grow up in the, in the perfect area. Our prom, primary problem is that when we see the glory of God, we are blind to it. Paul talks about it in Romans, but he, he says that rather than seeing God's glory in creation and in revelation in, in, in scriptures, rather than seeing it for what it is, appreciating it, accounting it for what it is as glorious and good and, and worthy of our, our attention and devotion and, and, and transformation, rather than seeing his glory that way, we exchange that glory for the glory of created things. Rather than looking to God who is my provider, we say, you know what, I'm gonna worship my work. I'm gonna worship my ability to do work. I'm gonna work 80 hours a week to get exactly what I need, where I want. I'm gonna have the money that I need to do what I want. Rather than worship the God who is the relational God, we worship human relationships. And we say, if I could just have that one, you know, that, that beautiful woman or that handsome man, if I could just have that person who could complete me, then everything would be okay. If I could just have X, you know, so-and-so from a rom-com, that, you know, th that kind of person, if I could just have that beautiful woman, then I could, I, I could be whole when God says, no, 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 no. Marriage is great, relationships are good, but they're based on something much deeper, the relationship between you and me. Do not exchange the glory of God for the glory of his creation because the glory of his creation was intended to point us to the creator in the same way that when you see the light of the sun, you don't say, wow, that's really cool light. It must be coming from the grass. No, the grass is illuminated by the light of the what? Sun. The glory of God is intended to draw us up to God. The glory of creation is intended to draw us to the creator. He says the, 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 the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, the, goal, sorry, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see, Paul is saying to them, 
that if there's any sort of veiling that's happening with the gospel, it's not because my presentation was poor. It's because their, their eyes have been blinded from seeing the glory of God as expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there's a difference between seeing Jesus, his life, his morality, his ministry, his, his horrible murder on the cross, and his resurrection as man. He was a great teacher, ascribing it the glory of a wise counselor, of a, of a philosopher-poet, versus ascribing it the glory of this is God at work. It's different. And, and he says they are, they are blinded from seeing the gospel for what it is. And maybe you've had that experience. Maybe prior to your conversion, you saw Jesus and he, you just thought he was a nice guy. But it just didn't strike you as important. He didn't strike you as a compelling individual to whom you, you bowed your knee in submission as Lord. You thought, well, he's a helpful teacher. I'll take some of his teachings. Maybe yes, maybe no. He's a good life coach. No, no, no. God in Jesus Christ is Lord. He says they're, they've been blinded in their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In, in Christ, we see not only, you know, a hint of God, but, but Christ is the visible image of God. And, and if you want to see God, if you want yourself to be unveiled, you don't need to, to kind of go into some sort of mystical trance. You go to the scriptures and you look and learn and hear about Jesus. It's veiled. Part of, part of what's being discussed here, if you were to go to chapter 3, Paul talks about the, the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And, and if you're not familiar with that, the Old Covenant was the covenant that God made, the, the agreement, the, the commitment that God made in blood. Primarily, we're speaking of the one he made through Moses. So Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, talking to Israel. This is how I want you to live, Israel. This is how I want you to be ruled, Israel. And as a result, I will be your God and you will be my people. And in this context... The, the, the one who stood between God and his people was Moses. And in Exodus 34, we, we see this, this interaction between God's people and Moses. Starting in verse uh, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony, right? So Moses had been on the, the mountain for for a, a period of time, and he comes down with the Ten Commandments. I mean, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, you're thinking um, Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments. If not, don't worry about it. It's not accurate. He's white, not Jewish. Um, he comes down. Thank you. Um, and it says, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shown because he had been talking with God, right? If you think you're something in the spirit, just go and read Exodus because Moses talks face to face with God so much so that when he, he comes away from his meetings, you know, when I come away from my prayer time with God, I might be a little excited. I might be a little like jazzed and, you know, let's do this. I might be a little faith filled. When Moses comes away from his prayer time, he is glowing. He's radioactive. 
So much so that uh, he did not know that the, the skin on his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. They, they, they were freaked out. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. After all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him, uh, they came near and he commanded them. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. He covered up the glory because it was too much for them to handle. He covered up the glory. And the problem that we have in the New Testament, the problem that Paul is getting at is that the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is veiled to them. But it's not veiled because they... They didn't grow up in the right area. They didn't have enough money. They didn't have the things they need. It's veiled because they don't want to see it. It's a veil of willing unbelief. And he goes on and he says, he, 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 he says all of these things and he steps back and he says, guys, here's what I want you to hear. He says, for, and, and that for is intended to show us that this is a grounding statement Right? He said, you know, my ministry was not underhanded. It was bold. It was open. It was free. It was the truth. He says the gospel's veiled to them. And he says, guys, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. I'm not, I'm not preaching about Paul. This is not the Paul show. This is not Paul saying Paul's awesome. But, but we preach Christ as Lord. <clears throat> and in fact, if Christ is Lord, we are your servants for Jesus' sake. And then he says, and you know what the reason for that is? You know why I proclaim that? He says, for God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, the same God who created all things, who turned on the lights in creation in Genesis, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we see this, this parallel. If you look at verse uh, 4, you see that he speaks of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then in verse 6, you see the light of the knowledge. So knowledge is synonymous with gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the glory of Christ is the same glory as the glory of God expressed in the face of Jesus Christ. What we have in this gospel message, family, what we have in Jesus Christ is God's greatest expression of his glory to us. You don't have to look at, you don't have to go to the Shenandoah Mountains to, to connect with God, although you certainly could. You don't even have to sit in a dark room and, and, and just sit silently to connect with God. God has shown us the, the expanse, the, the depth of his love, of his mercy, of his justice, of his his wrath, his hatred towards sin, his love for his people, his plan for all of creation, his lordship, all of that is wrapped up in the face of Jesus Christ. When we look at Jesus Christ, when we consider him on the cross, we see the perfect justice of God being poured out on, on and, and, and the wrath, the, the righteous anger of God being poured out on the sinfulness of humanity. We see that God is not pleased with people getting away with bad things. And, and while we don't want to think about that for ourselves, we do want to think of that in terms of other people. We want God to deal with the, an injustice in the world. I mean, just, 
don't do it, but turn on CNN, turn on Fox News, and just, you'll take, it'll take you three seconds to get angry. There's injustice in the world. And, and there's something deep within us that says, even though we're, we're not necessarily balanced about it, we want to see that justice righted. And in the, in the cross, we see God saying, I will deal with all injustice. At the same time, if, if you've paid attention and you've been at least a little bit self-aware, you're thinking, God, I need mercy. God, I, 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 I'm so glad you'll deal with justice, but can you give me mercy? <laughs> We look at our families, God, would you give my family mercy? We look at our children, God, would you give my children mercy? We look at our community, would you give our community mercy? And we want to look at, at, at other things for God's mercy. And God is saying, look to Christ where on the cross we see the justice of God and the mercy of God brought together in the person of the Trinity. That's glorious. I, I could never come up with the salvation plan that, that was so holistic. You could never come up with a, with a salvation plan that was so holistic. If we had plans to fix injustice, it would involve tanks and guns and stomping the enemy. When God planned from before the foundations of the world to bring about justice, he chose to stomp his son. It's, it's counterintuitive to the human mind, and it's glorious. We, we think of glory as the strongest person in the room with the most power. And we know that to be true because we look at, at the movie, the, the Marvel movies, you see the Avengers, you see, you know, we, a lot of people gravitate to the Hulk. The Hulk, if you're not familiar with the Hulk, this is this guy, Banner, he's radioactive, that's not really a don't, nerd out on me if you know gamma radiation. Okay, great. Um, but he has superpowers. He turns into this really big green being, and he, he's got a lot of power. And when we think of glory, we kind of think of that. We think of, you know, invincibility. But when God shows us glory, he doesn't just show us strength, but he shows us strength in submission to love. And, and there's something glorious about that. And even in the movies that we see, we see the same thing, right? Again, to, to look at the, the Avengers movies, there's, there's sacrificial um, deaths that happen. There, there are superheroes laying down their lives because we understand something about the glory of, of saying, I'm gonna give my life for my friends. But these are all shadows of the glory of God. You know, we, we don't do anything except for imitate the things that we see. And in creation, in scripture, we see the glory of God expressed. Family, I, I don't want you to do anything else. If you do anything, I want you to first and foremost see that God is glorious and that his glory is shown in our hearts through the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Israelites, they, they didn't want to see God's glory. They were afraid. They, they asked Moses to, to veil his face. But Paul says, that glory is available to you in the face of Jesus Christ. The old covenant had limitations. The law wasn't able to save you, but Jesus Christ is able to save us. The law didn't have any sort of um, 
ability to, to enact grace in your soul, but, but Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to convict your soul, to, to bring you to faith and repentance, and to enable your eyes, the eyes of your, your heart, to see God for who he is as glorious, to turn on the spiritual light. Jesus is glorious, and he's glorious for you and for me. Now, the funny thing is, one day he is going to return in a way that would make the Avengers look like pipsqueaks. You know, we don't have to go into it now, but he's going to come, and, and Revelation uses the, the, the symbolic language of him riding in on a white horse with his robe, a white robe expressing the purity of him, dipped in blood, a sword coming out of his mouth, and eyes of fire. I mean, Jesus is not to be trifled with. We don't have, we don't have a weak God but we have a good God and we have a gracious God. And I want to encourage you, family, see him today for who he is. See him for the glorious and gracious God that he is.